There's this assumption that Aboriginal people are vastly different or fundamentally different from non-Aboriginal people. Um, they're not, they're fundamentally the same. Now certainly there are pockets of Aboriginal people who have different problems, but those problems would be the same for a non-Aboriginal population if they were in the same circumstances. For those Aboriginal people who don't know where their next meal is coming from, who don't have access to fresh food and that sort of thing, that should be our priority. No, I don't see that as an Aboriginal problem, I see it as a people problem. The voice is kind of premised on, well, only Aboriginal people can help other Aboriginal people because only Aboriginal people can understand the mindset of other Aboriginal people. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is the unrepentantly white uh, Ricky Pike. Unfortunately, that's all true. But uh, we have Anthony Dillon in the house and he uh, will exercise, exorcise, my whiteness, hopefully. The demon, the white demon, <laughs> the white devil in you. Uh, yes, he's here to talk about the Indigenous voice uh, and, and uh, among other things. Excellent. Let's get it on. Return guest Anthony Dillon is an academic researcher, commentator and journalist who identifies as both Aboriginal and Australian. He is a postdoctoral fellow in the Indigenous Thriving Program at the Australian Catholic University in Sydney. He is a bold voice in the Indigenous affairs space and his work seeks to challenge popular narratives about race in Australia. He published a paper for the Centre for Independent Studies entitled Indigenous Suicide, Finding a Catalyst for Action. And he's also written for The Australian, The Spectator, The Epoch Times and The Age. Uh, Anthony, welcome back to the new flesh. Hi. So we've recently had a federal election here in Australia where our conservative government was voted out in favour of a, a progressive Labor Party. Were you surprised that Albo, that's Albany, Albany, uh, Anthony Albanese for our, our international audience, were you surprised that he got the gig? Uh, yeah, I was a little bit. Um, having said that, these days, and in fact for the last seven or eight years, uh, just about every major event that I've bet on, I've lost. Um, right. So it really is hard to tell these days. Because the previous one was quite shocking. Uh, the when Bill Shorten uh, lost, I remember that being too. Geez, I've forgotten who he lost to now. Was it Turnbull? We've <laughs> 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 had so many prime ministers. So uh, goodness me. Um, but in general, are, are Labor's policies significantly different when it comes to indigenous indigenous affairs by your by your lights? Um, it's not so much the policies, but the underlying theory or ideology uh, that I think is different. Um, and, you know, look, there's a little bit of overlap, but I, yeah, I think there's some definite differences. You know, the probably, you know, the main one being that um, the Indigenous, those people who identify as Indigenous today are somehow fundamentally and vastly different from those who don't identify as Indigenous. And, you know, and that the best way to uh, respond to those differences is to view it through a cultural lens sort of thing. And that's why uh, in academia and other places too now, you know, we're, we're hearing about safe spaces and the need for yarning and the Indigenous knowledges that, you know, that are somehow superior, to, you know, to the, um, um, you know, the shoddy westernised sciences. Well, I must say, I did notice a a sharp changing of the guard. So almost immediately, and this was just on the face of it, even if you don't pay attention to politics, you did notice that suddenly, instead of the one flag behind the politicians, we have three. We've got the Indigenous flag, the Australian, the well, I guess we call it the, the Union Jack or whatever, and and uh, the Torres Strait Island flag. And then there was, you know, which we'll get into as as we go progress, a lot more immediate discussion about about um, high profile cultural in, in Indigenous issues. Yeah, for sure. That's look, you know, putting up the flags. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But uh, you know, the, the new guy wanted to make a big splash, which he did, and he knows that uh, you know putting the, the voice front and center is going to draw a lot of attention. And I remember at the time. I was reading somewhere on a, it was on an ABC site. No surprises there. Some indigenous woman was just talking about how she was crying when she heard heard that. And I think, well, crying what for? <laughs> you know, what mm. cry, crying when she heard Anthony Albanese got got voted? Yeah, you know, <laughs> at last, at last, prime minister who cares? Goodness me! Um, I wish it was. I wish it was someone uh, a little bit more inspiring for her to cry over. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I, and you look. Know? I'd like to see, I'd like to, um, 
hear what she has to say in say twelve months' time. You know, mm. you still think um, he's the you know the Aboriginal the, the Prime Minister who's caring so much for Aboriginal people. And by, by the way, I'm not knocking Albanese. Mm. I'm just saying uh, when they say you know someone who cares, that translates to someone who's going to fix problems fairly quickly. Mm. Well, I think I think that's um, it's dangerous territory because we're seeing in New Zealand, like Jacinta Ardern. I mean, she was she was the darling of the left, and and, and people loved her. But things are turning in New Zealand. I mean, people yeah. are protesting in the streets, and she, her approval rating is is you know the lowest it's ever been. And look, you know, I can I'm just writing something on this at the moment. Um, yes, I have my preferences as far as government goes, but having said that, the ones who um, you know, a number two or three on my list, you know, maybe not numbers five and six and seven, but, you know, the, the top few ones that are leading, they're basically all good people. Hmm. Um, you know, some have some ideas which may be a bit dumb, but they're not nasty, narcissistic and misogynistic and, and whatever happens to be the flavour of the day in terms of criticisms. But we know that problems facing the Aboriginal and, you know, the population in general, but let's focus on the Indigenous population, aren't going to be fixed you know, like that, particularly when you've got, you know, all the, the political correctness and that sort of BS, which I call, you know, it's like the arterial plaque in the circulatory system, uh, you know, starving the heart of oxygen. We're not going to get um, easy solutions, or, you know, uh, effective solutions. Uh, uh, the other thing that comes to mind too is I remember when Ken White got the, the top job. And, you know, I'm not blocking Ken at all, but I remember thinking, you know, and people saw this. Oh, at last, we've got an Indigenous uh, minister for Indigenous affairs, and that's we needed that. That's the only way it could work. And I thought, nonsense. You, you need an effective person. Plus, you need the, the the goodwill of the people. And again, not knocking Ken, but you know, look what happened. He wasn't the saviour. And then, you know, within a, a couple of months, it turned out that you know he wasn't the right kind of saviour <laughs> for the Indigenous people. And I predicted too when he got in. I thought he's going to be criticised by the, you know, the usual suspects, the blacktivists, the ones who, who love to hang around SBS and ABC and that sort of thing. And I saw absolutely disgusting words said about him, which I won't repeat, but, you know, they're the, they're the sorts of names that are reserved for any Indigenous person who, you know, goes against the victim narrative and that sort of thing. And, you know, my prediction was right. Uh, but so now apparently we've got the right sort of Indigenous person to Bernie, and I'm all for giving her a go. You know, um, I want her to, to do well, but I, you know, I think we're going to have the, the problems we've already um, alluded to in the first few minutes of this interview. Well, we've we've got you on board to what well, we'd like to discuss with you in depth, uh, the voice. Uh, but be, be, before we do so, uh, I've just got a, a really good quote here that I wanted to read out uh, from an article you penned uh, in The Australian recently. And it's fairly provocative. And you made this statement, what prevents our leaders, our journalists from demanding an end to this destruction? The answer is that an old mindset dominates Aboriginal affairs that prefers words and symbolic gestures over action, short-term thinking over long-term thinking, engaging in endless consultation, meaningless research, political speeches and report writing over addressing real problems such as poor health, poverty and violence and a fear of being labelled racist for pointing out some inconvenient truths such as stating that racism is not the big culprit holding Aboriginal people back. Now, this is the kind of writing that might get you cancelled and would certainly get you cancelled if someone with white skin were, were to yeah. say that. But can, can you walk us through your thoughts here? Okay, well, that's quite a long quote you did, but uh, I think the crux of it is, you know, people in general... They want everything now, now, now. And we, we live in that rapid fire age where we want immediate solutions. And, you know, as I keep saying when I give lectures and that sort of thing, you know, I'm, I'm of an age, mid-50s, when when I was a, a kid, you'd take photos with your camera, you'd take your film down to Kmart, a week later you'd get the prints and you thought it was great. And then it went to one hour and you thought this is fantastic. Uh, and these days you take a photo, you send it halfway around the world, within a few seconds so you know everything's now 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 and for a lot of problems which have developed over decades and generations you can't get that immediate turnaround it does require a bit of uprooting planting new seeds watering them uh, and you do have to do a lot of sowing and cultivating before you can reap uh, the benefits so you know time and then there's you know all the um, what people want to hear 
very often when you're talking about problems facing Aboriginal people, you have to identify perpetrators, and we often don't want to do that for obvious reasons, you know, when it comes to violence and um, community dysfunction and that sort of thing. So, you know, the nice, simple, sweet narrative of colonisation was the problem, let's decolonise, whatever that means, um, and let's indigenise places and change street names and uh, all that sort of thing, is much preferred. And I think also what's a lot of what's driving this, people crave for this unique Indigenous cultural experience. And like I said, you know, yarning and, uh, well, you know, you're connected to the land and all that sort of thing. A lot of, you know, institutions want that experience. And if they don't have it, they will kind of fabricate it and work with, you know, a fabrication of reality. And the reality is, you know, many Indigenous people are no different to you and I. Um, Certainly the fundamental needs are the same, but also their outlook on life is the same. They have a favourite sports team. uh, They're concerned about the cost of living, that sort of thing. Uh, They want to be able to afford petrol for the car. Uh, They want, they, you know, need work, rest and play. And they're really no different. And for those Indigenous people where, who don't have that, uh, like recently I was in uh, Central Australia and a, a couple of other places too, where you've got the Indigenous people, and by the way, you know, unmistakably Indigenous, they don't have to tell you what mob they're from for you to recognise that they're Indigenous, who are missing out on the essentials. They're not embracing their, their culture or, or you know, only, only some thin elements of it. So it's not the case that we have... The modern Aboriginal person, and we have the cultural Aboriginal person. We have a, we have quite a few who are kind of neither one or the other. Um, but certainly, the loudest voices, those driving the narrative, live a life just you and I, like you and I do. You know, here we are doing this. I'm in my home. You're in ha- your your home, and we're doing this podcast. And they do the same things. They have they're just as familiar with the same sort of technology and all that sort of thing. Well, I guess there's there's this view out there that unless you are Indigenous, you can't understand uh, an Indigenous person and uh, you can't can't make a comment, you know, on, on political issues that, that affect Indigenous people because you, you, you can't seem to uh, understand them at all. Yeah, and that would certainly probably be, you know, for the last 25, uh, 30 years that I've been involved in Indigenous affairs, that is been in the top three of what I think are the biggest killers of Indigenous people. It's, you know, absolute nonsense. We, you know, we see high-profile examples like Fred Hollows, who just went around helping whoever needed their sight restored. Uh, he was competent in restoring sight, and that's what he did. Didn't matter if you are Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal. Um, so, yeah, it it is certainly a big hindrance. And I have no problem with Indigenous people accessing services provided by Indigenous people, and there's some very good ones out there. But this insistence, well, only an Indigenous person can understand another Indigenous person, is absolute nonsense, and I've never seen any strong evidence for it. I think that you you should have a a guest spot at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, and that should be your your panel, I think, Anthony. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, and th- that sort of stems from this belief that there's a fundamental difference between indigenous and non-indigenous Australians. Yes, it's certainly it, it's an idea that that uh, we've talked about on uh, on our previous interview, and and it's uh, you know I think it's at at the moment you're you're uh, the only one uh, banging that drum, and uh, I think people people need to get on board. Yeah, and look, also if you flip it around, and I, I may have asked this question last time, I'm not sure. You as you know, a couple of white guys. I don't know if you're mm. if you're family men or whatever. I don't know your your backgrounds, but I'm pretty sure if you took your car to be fixed, you wouldn't care if the mechanic was Aboriginal or not. If you went to the doctor or the dentist, you wouldn't care if he was Aboriginal or not. Um, if you needed a psychologist to talk with, you wouldn't care if he was Aboriginal or not. You just want to know: can he or she do the job? Um, and you know, it's interesting. We do have many professionals identifying as Indigenous. And it would be silly to say, well, those Indigenous professionals, they can't really understand the non-Indigenous clients, blah, blah, blah. Complete nonsense. Absolutely, yeah. 
Well, we better dive into this this uh, indigenous voice because it is it is quite uh, there's quite a few avenues we can go down. So it it seems to me that the first thing on the new government's agenda, as we've spoken about, is is this indigenous voice of parliament. They they appear to be pushing for a referendum, so that's a people's vote, with the purpose of enshrining in the Australian Constitution a permanent elected person or a, or a body of people. Uh, that will be a, a a main consultation point between the government and Indigenous people, if I've got that correct. Now, uh, you've been a, a, a... Well, I think you have been critical of The Voice, as we've, we've read about uh, uh, online. Uh, can you outline perhaps some of your uh, concerns, criticisms uh, about The Voice? Okay, first of all, you know, a disclaimer. If it, if it works at the end of the day, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong. Uh, but I don't think it will. And when we find out that it doesn't work, you know, either... One or two years into it, I'll be saying, "Look, can we get on and do what we know does work?" And you know, the voice itself, I, you know, there's there's a, a few good elements in there, but it carries a lot of other stuff as well. And you know, those good things, I think, um, great minds like Chris Kenny, for example, see those those good things, and um, he wants the same as you and I. Um, but I disagree with him where he, where he thinks the voice is the vehicle to deliver it. The question is why I, I think it won't work or what the problems are. I've already alluded to that, and that is, one, it, it, there's this assumption that Aboriginal people are vastly different or fundamentally different from non-Aboriginal people. Um, they're not. They're fundamentally the same. Now, certainly there are pockets of Aboriginal people who have different problems, but those problems would be the same for a non-Aboriginal population if they were in the same circumstances. So, you know, for those Aboriginal people who who don't know where their next meal is coming from, who don't have access to fresh food and that sort of thing. That should be our priority. And I don't see that as an Aboriginal problem. I see it as a people problem. And it comes back to what you were saying before. The voice is kind of premised on, well, only Aboriginal people can help Aboriginal other Aboriginal people because only Aboriginal people can understand the mindset of other Aboriginal people, etc., etc. The other thing, too, is... We know, and you know what I'm saying. First of all, a lot of what I'm saying applies to lots of other things I've been critical of over the years. We know that many Aboriginal people are doing quite well today. Um, they live in safe homes, safe environments, have a good job, have friends, you know, all those good things. Um, and some of them are quite wealthy, and I'm not knocking that. They're good on them. So how did they do it? Well, first of all, we know they did it without a voice. They did it without a treaty, and they were doing it before the, you know, the Rudd apology. And I only have to look at my own family to see uh, a family of winners on the Aboriginal side. Uh, that includes my father, you know, Australia's first Aboriginal police officer, but also his brothers and sisters and uncles and aunties who certainly aren't well known, but he would call them winners as well. They're just great contributors to society. So we've had many Aboriginal people making a success, making a go of life for many generations now. And like I said, they've done it without tinkering with the constitution. They've done it without the voice. So how have they done it? And also, interestingly, the Indigenous advocates or architects of the voice are doing quite well. So, sure, if they want to talk about the voice, that's fine, but they should also be talking also about their own path, their own story, what's enabled them to be successful. Um, Now, they might say, well, yeah, look, it's, well, the voice is more for those people, Anthony, that you spoke about before that are often living in remote communities who aren't doing well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if that's the case, define it like that, map out a a bit of a plan, tell us what the voice will enable us to do that we can't already be doing, um, and then you might get some more voters, but we haven't heard that story Yes, yeah. Just to pick up on something that you uh, that you said there, that you know, a lot of the people that are that are sort of, I guess, planning and advocating for the voice are successful Indigenous people that are, you know, fairly removed from some of these uh, regional communities. They live in inner city suburbs. You know, they live in nice houses. Why why isn't there more made of of this divide? That that the people that are really pushing for some of these symbolic gestures are themselves not really in need of them yeah um i don't know um maybe because because they're seen as exceptional um and yeah that, that you know that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind it is it is a a, a tricky question because yeah i feel like that, that sort of taps into uh what 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 some people and and more cynically minded people might see as a bit of a grievance industry you know where you set up these these governance bodies and you know i'm sure that, 
top CEO of an indigenous advocacy organization get, gets paid, a, you know, a fairly good sum for, for what he or she does. And, you know, in order to, to keep that job sort of going, you sort of, you need to keep, keep new symbols coming up and, oh, we need the voice, we need this, we need that, you know, to keep it rolling on. Oh, absolutely. And look, it's a little bit, I've used the analogy before, it's a little bit like the butcher who keeps his hand on the scale when, he, when he's weighing your meat. <laughs> there's, there's an immediate benefit for him. So, so yeah, you know, it's about, you know, people keeping their little empires going. So in, in terms of the voice, uh, there's been a significant campaign in, in, in recent months. We've got pundits, print ads, the works. Uh, I even saw posters for uh, the Statement from the Heart, obviously from some uh, a, a lobby group. Now, no doubt there are, are many Australians uh, who are thinking in light of this kind of blitzkrieg, what, what's the rush this thing seems to have come out of nowhere. I'm sure the other. I'm sure that there are lobbyists on the other side and say, "Well, actually, it's been in the making for a hundred years or something." But in real terms, it's come out of nowhere, and one can't help but feel that the lobbyists are trying to. I get the sense that it looks like they're trying to ram it through before Albo gets rolled or something yeah. like that. Um, I mean, what's your read on the timing and the urgency of this issue? Oh, look, I think it's. People wanting to make their mark now, perhaps. You know, you get some people probably wanting to have their their Martin Luther King moment, sort of thing, and say, you know, I was part of that. Um, so you know, why not start doing it today rather than tomorrow? But if it's an intrinsically good thing, and if enough people on, let's just pick a, pick the side out who's in power. Let's just say if enough people, good people in Labor, agree with this intrinsically good idea, then w- w- why are why are we rushing? It just feels like there's no long-term view, uh, and 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 it seems to be a very emotive and uh, brittle uh, uh, arguments being put forward. People are very. I'm seeing a lot of um, emotional blackmail. <laughs> Look, possibly because we know that we still have major problems in some sector of the indigenous community, and uh, people are you know wanting to know, well, what are you doing about it? Okay, well, we're doing the voice, and once we have the voice. That'll fix those problems. So you know, perhaps that could be the reaction. It seems like changing. It, it, it would. It's this equivalent of, you know, we've played a losing season, and then they then the CEO comes out and says, "We've got the fix. We're going to change the jersey." Yeah. <laughs> and you go, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that'll certainly, and if they're jerseys that are, you know, nice colours, that will certainly get a lot of cheering from the sidelines. Sure. But will it win the match? I don't think so. Yeah. It's happened to my, my team. My team changed its jersey and we lost for quite a bit, you know, before <laughs> yeah. we started winning. So, But, you know, again, we seem to be very uh, short-sighted in a lot of things. And a friend explained it to me this way once. You know, it seems to be human nature, um, or at least the path of least resistance, and thankfully there's a critical mass of us that go against the path of least resistance. But I, there's a lot of people out there, their thinking is such that they want short-term gains that will result in a long-term pain, when in fact they should be going for some short-term pains that result in a long-term gain. Now, if you take that philosophy to election day, people, we're going to do some things that will result in a long-term pain but will be better off in the long run, you're not going to win the election. You win the election with these are the things that are going to make life better for us right now. And, you know, down the road there could be some serious problems as a result of that short-term thing about you know, no one wants, no one will think about that anyway. So, you know, we really do need to be talking about, okay, we have to have some, you know, address some unpleasant problems, address some unpleasant causes in order to turn things around. And, you know, there's, people don't want to have these unpleasant conversations. So I'd rather hear, give us an Indigenous minister for Indigenous affairs, change that street name. Uh, and probably the best of them, you know, make all these have businesses and, and celebrities declare their stand against racism. Big Shaq. We got Shaquille O'Neal coming <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, you know, another sort of quick surefire thing. So I feel he really turned the debate. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm on board now. Uh, for, yeah. for our listeners out there who, who don't know what we're talking about, uh, Shaquille O'Neal was in Australia recently and he somehow was at a press conference with our Prime Minister and got up to show his support for the Indigenous voice and 
which I, I think I'm, you know, I, I'm curious to know what, I mean, what, what do you think of that? Like, like having, having someone from the US who, you know, just happens to have the same, you know, brown skin as some indigenous people weighing in on, on issues here. Well, well, first of all, I think people are going to, I think that's going to slide off the radar soon and people will forget it. Although, like I said, I've been wrong with every bet I've had in the last year. But I think that, that one's that'll quietly slide away. And it was just one of those uh, silly things where, oh, let's grab it. You know, this is great. Mm. You know, we do live in an age of celebrity endorsement, I guess. And also, uh, yeah, you know, celebrities seem to be moving more into the political arena. And by the way, I think they have the right to say what they want to say because I do see people criticise them and say, you know, stick to acting. No, if they want to voice their opinion on guns or, or abortion or politics, that's fine. But, but at the end of the day, you need more than that. Mm. Um, you know, the, the people need to know how something's going to work and what the likely results mm. are going to be. You know, have we looked at everything? Have we uh, spoken about every problem or have we pushed some things away? And, um, yeah, you know, people need to see the, the whole picture. Mm. Well, I'm I'm a big Shaq fan, so I'll be voting Shaq for Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, but just just to pick up on and further, maybe maybe extend this idea of of the urgency of getting the voice out. Like I think it's it's for me it's problematic because there's not a lot of detail in how the voice will actually work, and and if that then goes to a referendum quite soon, I think Anthony Albanese is talking about doing it in the next year. We obviously we, we can't put a question to people that's three hundred pages long, like that explains exactly what the how it's going to work. Yeah. So, um, what are your thoughts on on I guess the 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 content of 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 or or the you know how is it going to work? How is that being you know explained to us? You know that three hundred page document you referred to, which I haven't read. I'm, I'm not going to, and you know I'll possibly be criticised for that. Well, Anthony, how come you, have, you can have an opinion uh, when you haven't read? Well, because I can have an opinion, okay? and I'm I'm happy to be shot down for it. Um, that three hundred page document it could quite possibly have the answers, but Uh, The average person, and keep in mind it's the average person who are going to be voting for this, I don't think they have the inclination to to go through a document like that. So we do need a simple uh, representation of it that is truly representative of it that explains this is how it's going to work. And for those who want more information, you can drill down and look at, you know, other documents and that sort of thing. So, you know, just putting yourself in the shoes of the average voter and again, I could be wrong, but I, I think they're going to be confused and think, you know, if it was if it was so good, um, it should be able to uh, explain in brevity, you know, where it gives us a good idea of how it's going to work and what it will achieve. Um, and, you know, it should, at the very least, let people know how it will address, you know, the difficult, serious problems we've spoken about. And it will let people know that we need it because... Uh, it can't be done now, and but the voice will allow us to do it. You know, so it'll tell us what the voice has got that we haven't already got. Uh, and I, you know, I personally do think we do already have what it takes to start fixing problems. Um, you know, all the PC stuff is, like I said, is the arterial plaque, and we have to sort of wrestle against that as well. But I do think we have most of what it takes. Certainly, the biggest problem is dealing with those people that are in the most disadvantaged areas, and that's often, not always, but often. In remote communities, and I'm not bagging those because I do love visiting remote communities, but I know that the people there do have it rough. I'm not saying they're not happy, but um, they don't have ready access to the sorts of things that you, I, and the architects of The Voice have ready access to. Uh, we'll, we'll perhaps touch on the uh, statement from the heart in, in, in a second because, in a, in a sense, this is the only document we have. Uh, it served as a prompt to... Um, uh, what we're seeing now with the referendum, the possible referendum, but it's the only document that you can read in one page and say, okay, well, this is sort of yeah. what we're thinking, right? So, I read this document and and taking into account all the all the stuff I've heard since, um, I just thought when I read it that this is this is not good enough. I read I read that document and that's what that's what I said to myself. I said this is not good enough from a marketing and retail perspective. You need to win the hearts and minds of all Australians for this to get through, or at least fifty-one yeah. percent, or whatever. Right yeah. now, not just the inner city elites. Now we've got to take. We've got to. This 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 idea needs to win over Italian Australians, 
Chinese Australians, of whom there are more than Indigenous people now. German Australians. There are more German Australians here than, than Indigenous people. Indian Australians are half the, the population of how many Indigenous people are uh, here. Vietnamese Australians. All who have to sign up to this thing. All who are coming from countries who have probably... They've got their own um, uh, 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 traumas and, 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 you know, vendettas and history. And some of these countries have had tanks roll across their lands recently. You know what I mean? And things like that. So I, I read the document and I thought, frankly, it's confusing. And many of these populations um, will feel that it doesn't concern them or, or, or that it hasn't been sold to them in a way that it really matters. Uh, and we, uh, so is it is it possible that, Australia will just nod and smile and then go into the voting booth and say no because the rollout's been bungled. Uh, y- yes, but it's also possible they'll just nod and smile and go in and say yes as well. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, so I'm not going to bet on this one. Yep. Um, and, you know, some people, it's in the back of their mind where they think, well, well, look, it doesn't affect me, but if it helps Aboriginal people, yeah, that's I'll take yes. Um, or they've been used to seeing... The slogans, the campaigns, the statements of how racist Australia is to Aboriginal people and, you know, all the systemic racism, which is kind of like the racism you turn to when you can't find the real racism. Special racism. Yeah, against them. So, yes, look, let's not underestimate a lot of people will be, and a lot of good people too, with good hearts, Will this will appeal to them. Um, and, you know, having said that, I think that's why we've also got to be careful not to knock those people who do vote Yes, because many of them will be coming from a, a good heart, a good place. I just think, I honestly think the the, the knocking won't come from the people, or to the people who are voting yes. The knocking will come if you admit that you voted no. Sure, but uh, having said that, we know that um, we have, and I, I wrote about this recently in the Epoch Times, where it seemed, you know, there's people out there that, say, that are saying, if you don't vote for it, you're racist. And if you do vote for it, you're racist. So it is coming from both sides. That's the most 2022 argument ever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but Anthony, one of the problems I have with it is there's so much vague language in that statement that a lot of people that, um, that maybe not might not be in tune with this sort of, uh, I don't want to call it woke speak, but it's it's sort of... Bureaucraties. Uh, yeah, bureaucraties. And, and, and especially people that, that have English as a second language. I mean, what are they to make of agreement making or truth telling, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. And even people for, for whom English is their first language. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of vagueness about it. But that does characterise Aboriginal affairs for what I've seen for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, you know, the, the statements of my sovereignty never ceded. What does that mean? You know, I'm mm. trying to picture... How do, I, how do I address that? Show me where I put the Band-Aid on when I hear statements like that. Or always was, always will be Aboriginal land. You know, you know, another one, a very silly one, you know, Aboriginal people taking control of Aboriginal affairs sort of thing. You know, again, a bit vague and it's been interpreted and misinterpreted in, in many ways. So, you know, I see a lot of vagueness around the voice, but I've also seen it around a lot of um, Aboriginal topics and, you know, and, the other example, which I've referred to at least three or four times already in this session, you know, racism. We've got to step out the systemic racism. Well, you know, that's a very vague term. It's it's very different to the idea of saying, do you know there's, you know, your gay cousin? Yeah. Do you know he can't get married? Well, don't don't you think he should be able to get married to who he wants to? And people go, yeah, yeah, I reckon he should get be able to get married. And then they then they vote yes. Whereas here we're talking about. A raft of of complex, vague ideas, some of which are good by the sounds of it, and some of which I, I plainly don't understand. And but then you're asking people to go in and and vote yes to the whole thing. That is that seems like a big ask. Yeah, and look, to, just to follow on from that that example where you gave you know a concrete example, as I said, you know you and I have access to fresh food at a reasonable price, and we have some choices. Many Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people as well, but I think proportionately more Aboriginal people live in areas where you just don't have those sorts of choices. Um, we have a choice of sending our kids to good schools, uh, not perfect schools, but reasonably good schools. We know in remote areas, you know, in too many of these places, you've got schools where you've got good staff, but they're not there long enough and there's all sorts of problems with attendance. And I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone, I'm just saying it's the nature of the beast there, that things that we take for granted aren't happening in these places. And again, I'm not not simply making it a, a remote urban 
argument, but generally speaking, if you you know to draw a line in the sand, you have the bigger problems in the remote areas, and uh, in the urban areas, things are, are generally you know, good. You know, we have access to things that we don't even think about. It's just just normal. And this was written in the Australian 10, 15 years ago. Um, the journalist Rothwell was saying, it's not about race, it's about place. Okay, And I think that's a good approximation. You know, there's always exceptions, but it's a, a pretty good approximation. It's about place, not race. If the voice gets up, I just hope the architects start to focus on those Indigenous people who are most disadvantaged. So we need to close what I call the internal gap. Um, you know, the gap that we talk about is between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. We need to close the internal gap, which is the gap between the, the poor or disadvantaged Indigenous and the well-off Indigenous. And I just tweeted this last night. I, I, you know, I put the question, it was a rhetorical question, what's the greatest shame of this nation that we've got too many Indigenous people living in squalor and disadvantage or the fact that we've got many Indigenous people living in great conditions, myself, architects of the voice, Indigenous journalists, that sort of thing, while we've got so many Indigenous people living in terrible conditions. So that's the gap we need to close up. So voice, if you're listening, I'd like you to make that your first first priority and I would stand with you. Uh, but you know, I think we really can do that now. Yeah. Well, just to get maybe a little bit more specific about the voice, let, let's say it goes through and we've got an Indigenous voice to Parliament what's going to stop it from becoming another bloated bureaucratic gravy train for a select few or, or becoming corrupted in that classic Canberra way, you know, uh, with cash being misappropriated and plum rolls gifted to friends and family? Uh, you know, have any of these possibilities been debated? Yeah, no, I, I haven't heard, and that's certainly questions a lot of people are asking. Let's hope there is some accountability. Um, and, you know, they yes, they will be watched closely. Maybe you need people who can put up their hands and say, yeah, I will be accountable for this. And you have a few different individuals. Um, and maybe it can be, you know, a, a rotating panel perhaps where every couple of years new ones come in. Do, do, Anthony, sorry to jump in here. Do, do you have any idea of, of, of how that actually works? Like is how are – so the voice is going to be a panel. Is that is that correct? It's not one person. It's it's a panel no, of Indigenous no. people. And how do those people get elected to the position? I, look, I don't know. Obviously, they would show an interest. Um, yes. And how many layers there are to it, I don't know. Um, maybe you do have experts, professionals, uh, you know, the sort of people we respect. Um, and I, I respect a lot of these people. I don't, obviously, I don't agree with a lot of things, but, you know, without naming names, some of the, you know, the big names the, who are proponents of the voice, I have a lot of respect for them. Okay? Mm. I disagree with them, but I have a lot of respect for them. So it'll be people like that, I'd imagine. And maybe they call on, you know, there's a, a subcommittee or something beneath them where they call on members from different states, communities or whatever. So, so, it's, not something, so it's not something the entire Indigenous population gets to vote for. That's, that's not what's... Oh, as to who the... I don't, that, you know, that might stall it if that was the case. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, I, you know, we're just spitballing here and I don't, I don't know how this is supposed to run. So if I'm way off base, that's fine. But... I came up with a naive solution to some of the possible hazards that we talked about a second ago, some of the corruption of the bloated stuff. What if in order to give advice or be part of the voice, you don't receive any payment or remuneration or a token fee? Like really, like you just, you need to be, you, the idea is that you, you're part of a community already. Like you, you're, you you know, so for example, Warren Mundine is a, a business owner or a, a businessman and he could be part of the, th the, the, the group, but he's not paid necessarily to be part of the group. So there's no incentive to make the group your full-time job. Now, look, I don't mind, you know, if they get some sort of payment, but um, along with that payment goes the message you will be held accountable. Yeah, so By who? You know, I guess if they are paid, they're probably could be more likely to think, you know, we better make this work or we've got to be seen to be doing the right thing. Yeah. Sort of thing. But but won't you be able just to say, and look, again, this is such a minefield, but I yeah. feel like if, you know, will ICAC be able to come in and be part of it? Like, because if you, if there is some kind of, you know, even low level, just not delivering of KPIs, can't you just sort of turn around and say, oh, that's a bit racist, don't you think? And then they go, ooh, <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe I am being racist. Maybe, okay, just continue on. I'll, I'll see you. Bye. 
Yeah. You know, how's this going to work? Yeah. Look, there's a lot of things we, we don't know, um, both on a uh, yeah, philosophical, ideological, well, you know, some of those details we know, but there's still a few blanks. And on a, a practical level, we don't know. But you know, generally speaking, I'm not opposed to, you know, giving some people some money, so long as they know, hey, you know, you're going to be writing reports on this sort of thing and reporting back to the public about what's happened and that sort of thing. Well, that's another. That's sort of another thought that just occurred to me now is that, you know, if the voice is supposed to be a consultative uh, sort of body, what what happens if the government doesn't implement a suggestion brought forward by oh, the voice? And actually, yeah, I was thinking of that as well because you know they could have unreasonable uh, recommendation suggestions. Like free coffees or something. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, changing every street name in the country. Sure. Um, having special rooms for safe spaces and buildings and, you know, yeah. whatever. And, yes, there will be that that backlash. Well, you know, we had this great idea, but the racist government just wouldn't. But, yeah, so that's that well, is a very But that's the concern. thing, the spectre. I just said this a second ago, the spectre of, oh, geez, that's a bit racist, don't you think? Like, like the, that, that, the spectre of that will always be there. It's, a, it's always in your back pocket, if you want. Like, you, you can say, I'm part of the body, I'll do whatever, but, like, you know, just be aware that the moment that I, I'm not happy with what's going on, I'm pulling out the, you're a racist bigot card. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, once that card's drawn... You know, the burden of proof is then on the accused. That's right. Yes. To yeah. demonstrate that they're not racist. And we know, too, that, you know, that racist mud is mud that sticks. Oh, no, there's no getting away from it. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly a good, good point. And that's something that should be at the top of the agenda of, about, okay, if we're going to have this, what can we do to safeguard against if the government say, no, we don't think it's a good idea? or there's other priorities or whatever, what can we do to safeguard against the accusation of racism? But we've talked about one of the words that's used in the Uluru Statement is this tr- is truth-telling. And perhaps you can tell me what you think that means in a second, but I feel like that what some Australians would want to hear is, if we're doing truth-telling, is they. I reckon a lot of them would be like, you know what, I'm... I'm probably I'm I want to vote for this thing, but can you give me can you give me like just one sign or one concession in this document that says that you know you will that that there'll be a good faith reading of of criticism and and a charitable reading of of any criticisms I have or anything l- later on that you won't just at any point turn around because because calling someone a racist is in the same like today is in the same basket as pedophile yep. and a range of other things so I feel like this is and I'm not I know some of this, the ideas I've come up with haven't been great but I think this is a good one if they, if they said look in the we need to address everyone's mortal fear of being called racist. So why don't we say that at no point will, uh, you know, will we use that as, as a cudgel, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't think you'll get that. It's not going to happen, yeah. you think? Okay, no. all right. Well, fair enough. <laughs> but, but this idea of truth-telling, what, what does that mean? Yeah, well, I think it'll be about colonisation, British invasion, but I think that, that truth... Or uh, you know maybe there's a few truths has been put out there. I see it you know often. I now if they want some formal grand statement, fine. But it's it's freely available information, um, and of course some of it's you know been erred away from the truth a little bit. And we've had other people come in and say, well actually no, this is what's happened, and, and that's fine. What we shouldn't ha- have is a situation where there's some gold statement that says this is what happened with colonisation, and it is not allowed to be challenged. We don't want that. If the voice or whoever want to make a statement and say this is what we believe happened, that's fine. But it's also open to being challenged. Well, I, I feel, Anthony, that tr- the concept of truth-telling, it kind of goes against this old idea we used to have, which was reconciliation. You know, I, I, I don't know what happened to reconciliation. I, I don't hear that word being thrown around anymore. And I feel as though, you know, truth-telling and, and, and perhaps some other techniques that are being used, like like the changing of the language from Aboriginal to Indigenous and then now to First Nations people, that that's sort of being used to trip people up so that they can then 
call them racist. You know, do you think some of these measures being implemented uh, are anti-reconciliation? Because constantly talking about what happened in the past isn't really burying the hatchet, is it? Absolutely not. And, you know, again, if you want to talk about what happened in the past, also talk about what happened before, what life was like before colonisation as well. And that's, that's often a truth they don't want to hear. And while there were certainly some good aspects in pre-colonisation Aboriginal culture, like all cultures, there were some ugly bits as well. And, you know, the, the white Anglo-Saxon people, they don't have, they don't have a problem acknowledging, yeah, this is what we evolved from. Um, and even, you know, in our, going back a couple of generations, um, we know that there have been dumb laws, okay, and dumb protocols and that sort of thing against women, against gays and uh, that sort of thing. And many of today's uh, people don't have a problem acknowledging, yeah, that's what it was like. You know, thank goodness we're not like that anymore. Uh, you know, even something as what might seem as trivial as throwing, you know, your rubbish out of the car as you're driving off. We don't do that anymore. Most of us don't do that anymore. But there's no shame in saying, yeah, we, we were dumb enough that we did that at one stage. And all civilizations, cultures and that can talk, can look back and say, you know, these are some of the dumb, stupid things we used to do. And not that far back either. But it just seems that with the Aboriginal thing, it's, oh, well, before colonisation, everything was great. That's not the case. They're no different to any other civilization. Um, you know, there were some bad things that were done, which seemed fine at the time. We're not here to judge you for that. But we're just saying, you know, we're very much alike. You know, the, the Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are very much alike in the sense that we evolved from a state, things that we wouldn't dream of doing today. So include that in the truth. You've talked about the past, Anthony. I've got a, 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 what might seem like a long question, but there is a question at the end of it. So in 2007, the Rudd government gave the apology to Australia's Indigenous peoples, which seemed mostly well-received, by myself included. Yeah. Uh, but, this, but this was a different time. There was relative prosperity in Australia. It was, I feel like it was a boom time, if I recall. It certainly was in WA. Uh, the war on terror was, was waging, but this was before we knew that it would end in America, sort of just pulling out and shrugging its shoulders after 20 years. The Chinese Communist Party uh, since has been unmasked as a lying, malignant and bona fide dictatorship with eyes on Taiwan. And right now, right now, we have a hot war, an actual war between sovereign nations that threatens to engulf everyone in a nuclear war. So 2022 is clearly not 2007, is what I'm saying. They're very, very different milieus, very different times. Do you think, here's the question, do you think that symbols have a place in a world teetering on the brink? Uh, yes, they do have a place. Um, I was, it was interesting. I saw um, a couple of months ago, Ringo Starr was saying he just wants people to video themselves. Peace sign. Doing that, you know. <laughs> okay. That, that's just basically saying, you know, the, the symbol often, not always, but often reflects, hey, I've got some goodwill. And, you know, I go to shake hands. When I go to shake hands with you, it's, you know, I'm sure it's not the feeling of my hand that sort of makes you feel good, but it's just this, hey, you know, we're, we're happy. It's just a symbol of I come to you in, in good faith. So I don't have a problem with symbols what I do have a problem with with is when people just make it the symbol alone and say they say this will fix the problem. So symbols often need to be accompanied by action. Coming back to what I said before, you know, changing the street names. I'm, you know, I don't outright oppose that. If you want to change suburb names and that sort of thing. But don't try and sell it to us as if we do that, that will heal Aboriginal people. Um, that'll give them some short-term fuzzy feelings, just like that lady who who cried when Albanese spoke about the um, you know tears of joy she had. I'm pretty certain she hasn't got those tears of joy today. And it was like with the apology too. Again, I didn't have a problem with the apology, but we had people saying um, let the healing begin. There, there was one prominent Indigenous politician who said, let the healing begin. You know, this was going to be a time of healing. Uh, and I said it wouldn't be. Okay? I wasn't opposed to it. I just said it's not going to bring about healing. You know, I, I said from day one, it's forgiveness that brings about healing for those who need the healing, not receiving an apology. Uh, so, yeah, a symbol's fine, but don't make it a necessary thing for moving forward. And, you know, it'd be a little bit like if I was in your office and as I walked out, you closed the door and it slammed on my foot or something and, and hurt me. It's nice if you say sorry, but I don't need you to say sorry in order for me to get on with life. It's nice if you did, 
but you are, you are disempowering me if you said, Anthony, you can't move forward until he apologises for slamming the door on his foot. You Aboriginal people, you cannot be happy until we change the street names. You Aboriginal people, you cannot be happy until we see flags everywhere. I'm not saying don't do them. I'm just saying don't make Indigenous people's well-being contingent on those things. Absolutely. And I don't think we can top that sentiment uh, for today. So, yes, unfortunately, Anthony, we've run out of time, but uh, I'd like to thank you for for stepping through this. Uh, as to painfully white gentlemen, the, talking about this stuff is... Um, it's it's a minefield (laughs) it's a minefield so thank you for leading us through gently well you created a safe space for me (laughs) thank you very much that's good uh so now where can uh people find you online well i'll say the first one they can find you on twitter and they should follow you on twitter because you bring the smoke on twitter uh all the time yeah um (laughs) yes so get me on twitter but also my I've got a, a collection of essays, you know, it must be 50 essays, I reckon, more than 50 essays on www.anthonydillon, that's D-I-L-L-O-N, .com.au. Well, we'll include links to uh, to those two places so people can uh, check you out. And also there's a, a Facebook page, Australia, Australians All at the Crossroads, um, that I have a, you know, I started off, started up many years ago, other people run it now, but, you know, they, they post um, current stories where they, they try and give a bit of a balance to what's happening. Uh, Australians all at the crossroads on the Facebook page. Just our final question, as we always uh, uh, finish with, uh, what are you reading not right now? Um, I'm reading a book by Hugh Mackay. Uh, oh, yeah, demographer. Uh, yeah, um, he's a social scientist. Social scientist. Yeah, yeah. And a, he's a psychologist and a very down-to-earth one who takes psychology, demystifies it, and just makes it very applicable for the average person. So that's that's my brand of psychology. It's called the inner self. So it's just about understanding uh, the self, and it's just written in a um, very plain uh, language. And I'm also getting towards the end of um, what, the, the Strange Death of Europe. Yes, thanks, Murray. <laughs> I've been going with that one for a little while. Didn't enjoy it as much as the madness of crowds and the war on the West, but still very insightful. Mm. Well, we're big fans. Uh, we'd love to have Douglas on the show someday. So if you have any uh, connections to him, <laughs> hit no, us up. I'd, I'd be relying on you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Anthony, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.